0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. If all goes according to plan, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will soon become the 116th Justice of the Supreme Court and its first black woman. Even though her ascension won't change the ideological dynamic of the high court, Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at New York University says a Justice Jackson will do something more.
1: It is going to be hugely consequential to have another Black voice that will make clear that Justice Thomas's voice does not necessarily speak for the entirety of the Black experience. And I think that will be especially important next term when the court takes up a very consequential challenge to affirmative action.
0: In this conversation, first recorded on March 30th for Washington Post Live, Professor Murray also dives into the integrity and independence of the Supreme Court given the news about text messages from Justice Thomas's wife to Donald Trump's chief of staff in her quest to overturn the 2020 election. Melissa, welcome to K-Part on Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on your new post, your promotion.
0: (laughs) Oh well, thank you, thank you. Uh, before we get into talking about the confirmation, let's let's talk about this Ginny uh, Thomas text messages thing, um, and talk about why why these text messages by or from the spouse of a justice to the White House chief of staff is so po- problematic um, from the court from a from the court's perspective.
1: Well, let's just think about that. The wife of a sitting justice having the private number of the chief of staff of the president of the United States and text messaging him during what is an insurrection on the Capitol about the need to take back this country, to put the sitting then sitting president and continue to have him in his spot in the White House. I mean, it really does boggle the mind. And to be clear, This isn't the first time that we've heard about um, perhaps an untoward or too deep relationship between Ginny Thomas's work as a lobbyist and consultant in Washington, D.C., and the work that her husband performs as a member of the Supreme Court. Um, This has been something that has been talked about in Washington, D.C. for years. Um, The reporting this year has actually grown more ferocious. There have been at least four reports in as many weeks about Ginny Thomas's um, work and the way in which it frequently interacts with the work that her husband does as a member of the supreme court but i think what is especially problematic here is that the Supreme Court is going to be an arbiter of what happened on January 6th. Um, they were they are hearing cases. They have already heard cases about whether or not certain information could be disclosed to the January 6th special committee. And interestingly, in at least one of those cases, Justice Thomas was the lone dissenter. And so it begs the question, um, how closely related are the Thomas's activities? And it's not to say that Justice Thomas is somehow corrupted or is not impartial, it is to say that the appearance of a too close relationship is certainly there. And for a branch that really depends on the goodwill of the public for its own legitimacy, depends on the public understanding its work as driven by law as opposed to partisan politics, this is a really untoward association that cannot sit well.
0: All right, so there's a lot in your answer that I want want to get through uh, piece by piece first. Do you think because the the Supreme Court is going to be hearing cases related to January 6th and the insurrection should Justice Thomas recuse himself?
1: I think should and will are very different things. Um should he? <laughs> right. Likely he should given that this really lends the appearance of impropriety. Um lends the view that he cannot be impartial. Like whether he can be impartial is not the question. Like, no one is questioning whether he can be impartial. It's really more that perhaps he has forfeited the right to be impartial because the mm. association looks so close. And, you know, I will be very clear here. This is not the first time that this question has arisen in the context of the Thomases. Um, reporting from Jane Mayer at the New Yorker and Danny Hakeen and Joe Becker of the New York Times has made very clear that Ginny Thomas' work as a consultant often involves working with. Individuals who are litigants and repeat players at the Supreme Court. So there has been there have been other occasions where you might wonder whether recusal might have been appropriate. It just seems in this particular case that the Thomases actually have a stake in this because Ginny Thomas is already implicated um, by sending these text messages to Mark Meadows. And so there is a federal statute that says that in circumstances like these, a sitting judge, whether it's a justice or a member of the lower federal courts cannot hear a case in which he or she has a stake in the outcome. And because Ginny Thomas has been identified as someone who was in the mix on January 6th, it would stand to reason that Justice Thomas is someone who has a stake in this outcome, if only because he protects his wife or wants to protect his wife in this situation.
0: And I, I love how you say, should or should he recuse himself or will he recuse himself? And so I'm going to focus in on the will part because I wonder, I think a lot of people are wondering uh, who can make him recuse himself or who can hold him accountable? Is there anyone?
1: So, do you watch The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Jonathan?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tried years ago, I, I stopped.
1: Well, so. There's there's a person on the Real Housewives, Sheree Whitfield, and um she's sort of famous for at one point saying to someone like, Who to check me, boo? And I think Oh that's yes. well, I know
0: that one. <laughs> <You> know that. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, I know well, that. Okay.
1: Who's going to check Justice Thomas here? Um, The Supreme Court justices are not bound by the same recusal rules as other federal judges. So he doesn't have to recuse himself. The real question is, will there be pressure, whether external pressure or pressure from inside the court, from his colleagues, to recuse himself? Um, To my knowledge, Justice Thomas has recused himself once before um, in a case involving the Virginia Military Institute. It was a challenge to VMI's all-male administration. Policy And Justice Thomas removed himself from that case because his son, Jamal, was at the time a student at VMI. So, so it made sense. But other Supreme Court justices have really, you know, sort of exercised their own judgment about whether or not they could be impartial. Just last term there was a case involving British Petroleum um, and there were questions about whether the newest justice, Justice Barrett, should recuse herself because her father had been an executive um, in BP or in an earlier um, iteration of BP. I think BP may have purchased the company for which he worked and so she chose not to recuse herself in that particular circumstance. So again, there's a lot of latitude here, but I think there may be, well be pressure from inside the court about recusal. And then of course, there may also be investigations around this federal statute to see if the Thomases actually do have a stake in this outcome. And if the if Justice Thomas doesn't take himself out of this, there may be reprisals for that too.
0: You know, because I'm sitting here wondering, and I'm sure they're, you know, the constitutional scholars who, who are also probably watching, or at least fans of, of, of Schoolhouse Rock, know that the Supreme Court is a separate branch of government. And so I think you were saying earlier on that really the court derives its legitimacy from the perception of the public that it is imp- truly impartial. And so, I mean, you're a constitutional law professor, you're a constitutional scholar. How has the the integrity and the public perception of the of the court eroded, um, let's say, since the 2000 presidential election? But has it started galloping since the Trump years?
1: So. I- Again, the court has ebbs and flows. Um, It does depend on the public for its legitimacy. The public has to view what the court is doing as legitimate um, and that's why they obey. There's nothing to make them obey. But I think the court has had a really difficult run, certainly in the last year. There was, of course, in September, the challenge on SBH, um, the Texas abortion statute that prohibits abortion at just six weeks, where the court recognizing and in some cases conceding by some members that the law was patently unconstitutional given the court's prior precedence allowed that law to remain in place in texas because of a procedural quirk that made it difficult to challenge it and you know i think many people thought that that was an outcome that would not have been possible a year or two years ago um, when the court was differently composed but the fact that the court is now a six to three conservative super majority suggests that maybe suddenly lots of things are open where they weren't before and i think that lends a sense of illegitimacy the idea that nothing has changed about the court except its personnel. And now suddenly we're seeing the court being incredibly aggressive about assaults on established rights, rolling back um, protections for the administrative state. I I think all of that lends the impression that the court perhaps is more politicized than it has been. And we've seen the justices take to the Huskings to disclaim these charges of over politicization. So we saw Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, advise individuals that this was not a group of partisan hacks. Um, regrettably, she made that claim while she was on stage at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville with Mitch McConnell looking on unfortunate optics. We also saw Justice Thomas make a similar claim that they were not partisan, they were not political, they were doing law. So. You know, We've had a number of justices, probably more than I can think of at any time, sort of go on a world tour to make clear to the public that they're not partisan hacks. Like That can only happen because they understand that the public is questioning the court's legitimacy. And indeed, in recent Gallup polling, the, poll, the court had its lowest Gallup rating it has ever had in the history of the Gallup poll asking about the Supreme Court.
0: And so you, you talked about a, a few of the justices who've gone out on the hustings to talk up um, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. One person you didn't mention is the Chief Justice, um, who, from everything that I've read, truly holds the integrity of of the Supreme Court and its role uh, in our system of government very, very dear. From From your vantage point, how's he doing in that endeavor, especially now with a 6-3 conservative supermajority?
1: I think the Supreme the Supreme Court um, is sort of in a free fall in terms of its institutional legitimacy. And I think the chief justice likely knows that, but is ill-equipped to actually do anything to stop it. Because now that we have a six to three conservative supermajority, the chief isn't needed by the conservative bloc to make a majority. They have five people, irrespective of the chief. And so we've often seen in some of these controversial cases, like SB8, for example, the chief justice improbably with the liberal bloc asking the court to stay the Texas um, law that the court allowed to remain in use in Texas. And so he's in this sort of weird position where he's with his liberal colleagues, but he cannot make his conservative colleagues listen to him on some of these things. And you're right, he is a stalwart institutionalist. He wants the court to be understood as legitimate because he knows that's the only way to maintain the court's authority. But he also has a conservative block of five people who seem ready to, like, move forward. And it's not to say that going forward on a more conservative agenda isn't something that the chief justice doesn't want. I mean, he is also a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, but I think his institutional proclivities often outweigh that. So he is more likely to push in that direction, but in a slower kind of pace. So, Mm. you know, if he's in a Datsun, his colleagues are in a Tesla, and they want to go fast and furious and he would rather go slow, and they're not listening to him right now.
0: That is a, that is a, a, a great analogy. One more question about Justice Thomas, and then we'll talk about um, soon to be Justice Jackson. There are a lot of people who, who are having the conversation that Justice Thomas should be impeached. What do you, your thoughts on just even having that kind of conversation about a Supreme Court justice?
1: Well, so two things. One, I think impeachment is very unlikely. Um, CEG, the events of the last two years, very difficult to get anyone impeached, let alone a Supreme Court justice. The last two prospective impeachments of Supreme Court justices that I can recall are from one from the 1960s when Abe Fortas, who was an associate justice of the Supreme Court, um, was also implicated on charges of impropriety relating to his wife's career, um, ironically enough. Uh, And he wasn't impeached. Uh, He did have a series of investigations against him that ultimately led to him resigning from the court. And, And it was... I think the re- the resignation of Abe Fortas that offered uh, Richard Nixon quite a number of opportunities to really change the composition of the court. So it was a consequential resignation on a number of fronts that set in motion the conservative direction that I think we are seeing in full flower today. Um, the earlier uh, question of impeachment came up in the wake of the Civil War with Salmon Chase, who was um, a justice of the court. Um, again not impeached, but investigated and, or it wasn't removed from his office. He was impeached. Um, not, But the investigation, I think, did lead him to sort of pull back some of his more partisan dealings in that wake. So, you know, there's the question of, is he likely to be impeached? I don't know. I think there will surely be an investigation at some point, And maybe that will prompt Justice Thomas uh, to think about what the optics of all of this looks like, and maybe perhaps to recuse himself in particular cases, or uh, perhaps to, you know, limit or put more of a wall between his dealings and what his wife is doing separately.
0: Oh well, we will we will see about that. Let's talk about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, you were just talking about, there is a super majority, conservative majority on the court, 6-3. Um, mm-hmm. Upon confirmation of uh, dyna- uh, Judge Jackson, that dynamic will not change. So what impact will a Justice Jackson have on the Supreme Court?
1: So leaving aside the practical consequences, which I think, as you say, are going to be negligible, she's not going to disrupt this conservative supermajority, although she may have a very important voice, certainly in the criminal justice arena, um, in dissenting, I think um, that may come across. And there also may be opportunities to forge some coalitions with um, some unlikely bedfellows. Um, Neil Gorsuch is a sort of noted libertarian. That can often prove to be a fruitful line for coalition building with liberals on criminal justice issues. So, so maybe that is a place where she will make her mark, but I think at least initially her real power is going to be symbolic, like what it means to actually have. Another black voice on the court and to have that voice be the voice of a black woman, I think is absolutely important. Um, it sends a message to black women lawyers. It sends a message to little girls across the country about what is possible. And I think in the interpersonal dynamics of the court, it is going to be hugely consequential to have another black voice that will make clear That Justice Thomas's voice does not necessarily speak for the entirety of the black experience. And I think that will be especially important next term when the court takes up a very consequential challenge to affirmative action.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. See why mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H Money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
0: Judge Jackson was asked uh, about affirmative action, and she said that she would recuse herself. From this case. So if she recuses herself, can she be a part of any of those conversations to lend that experience that you're talking about?
1: So here's the rub of this. Like, it is true that she has served on the Harvard Board of Overseers, um, which perhaps may provide a foundation for her removing herself from the consideration of the Harvard case. But there are actually two challenges, Jonathan. One, uh-huh. a statutory challenge um, rooted in Harvard's practices, but also a constitutional challenge about the University of North Carolina. And arguably, that constitutional challenge is perhaps the bigger case because it will determine the constitutional status of affirmative action. And she's not precluded from accusing herself. She's not required to accuse herself or or even suggesting to accuse herself in that case because she has no dealings with the University of North Carolina. So she can certainly participate in that case. Um, and there was a couple of terms ago, a case regarding faithless electors. And Justice Sotomayor um, removed herself from one of the cases. There were two cases at issue because she knew one of the litigation. Um, But she participated fully in the disposition of the other case. Um, And, you know, you could imagine a similar kind of dynamic happening here in the context of affirmative action. So I think this is why we didn't get that much discussion of it at the confirmation hearings. I think Republicans were set to make a big deal of it. But there are these two cases. And if we're going to talk about recusal politics, we probably also want to talk about the Thomases. So maybe that was a reason to not talk about it at all.
0: Okay. <laughs> Excellent point. Um, I want to go back to something. Um, the fact that a uh, Justice Jackson won't change the ideological um, makeup of the court. It'll still be a 6-3 conservative majority of the court. But you talked about the importance of her in terms of dissent. Why are dissenting opinions sometimes as important as the majority opinion?
1: So dissents are really interesting because um, in the moment, they obviously represent a minority viewpoint, but they can sort of point the way to a reconsideration of the jurisprudence in time. And so, you know, the most famous dissent, I think, um, in recent memory is Justice John Marshall Harlan's the first dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, where he said that Plessy versus Ferguson, the decision that enshrined separate but equal was absolutely wrong, a constitutional apostasy, and in time, that viewpoint came to be the prevailing viewpoint. And indeed, Plessy was overruled in 1954 by Brown versus Board of Education. So there's sort of a long game idea with dissents, but there can also be short term gains. So for example, um, in uh, 20, I think it's 2014 perhaps, 2018, I think. Uh, the Lily 2014, the Lily Ledbetter case came before the court, and this was a challenge to um, employment practices at a Goodyear plant. Um, there was a woman, Lily Ledbetter, who discovered very late in her career at the Goodyear plant that she was being underpaid relative to her male colleagues, and so she filed suit. And her suit was deemed time-barred. She had not filed it soon enough, or after after the discrimination had occurred. She would filed it when she learned of the discrimination many years later. And a majority of the court said, you know, you're out of luck, Lily Ledbetter. Um, the time has run on your claim, and you can't bring it out of time. Justice Ginsburg, who at the time was the only woman on the court, this is during that a brief interregnum, this is 2009, where before mm-hmm. Justice Sotomayor was on the court, but after Justice O'Connor um, had left, and she's the only woman, and she read her dissent, and it was a stinging dissent from the bench in which she chided her male colleagues about their lack of understanding of how difficult it might be in a work environment dominated by men, for a woman to understand that she was being underpaid in part because salary information is so private, people don't talk about it, of course she was going to be late to the game. And you know the court was simply crediting an institutional and systemic model that disadvantaged her. And so she kicked the can to Congress, like my colleagues won't do anything for Lilly Ledbetter, but that doesn't mean that Congress can't fix this by changing the law to allow claims like these to go forward. And she made that point to Congress, Congress heard her, and the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the first law that then President Barack Obama signed into law when he became president in 2008.
0: Um, another uh, another dissent that proved to be pivotal and I can't remember the year I think it was either late 90s or early 2000s but it was re- it was related to uh, gay rights at the time uh, I think it was related to marriage and Justice Scalia wrote in his dissenting opinion that because you guys did this in the majority you're opening the door to gay marriage and I Voila, look where we are. So do I do I owe my marriage to Justice Scalia?
1: Well, I I would not send a bouquet of flowers just yet. It's true. So that was a 2003 case called Lawrence versus Texas, where Justice Kennedy, Justice Kennedy writing for the majority, struck down a Texas anti-sodomy statute on the ground that it deprived gay men and women of full dignity and intruded impermissibly into a range of private life that was afforded constitutional protection. Justice Scalia, as you note, issued a stinging dissent where he talked about a wide range of laws that are all sort of rooted in majoritarian social mores around sex that he said were called into question by this decision, including the sexual mores around opposite sex marriage. And and he noted. If this is off the table, if we can't use bare morality to criminalize sodomy, what justifies limiting marriage to opposite sex couples? And you're exactly right. Um, Twelve years later, we had in 2015 Obergefell versus Hodges. So an important decision. But I think you may want to send the flowers to Justice Kennedy as opposed to Justice
0: Solia. Sal- oh. oh, no, no, no. With that question, I was just being kind of cheeky. There, because Justice Scalia was as beautiful as the Lawrence v. Texas decision was. Um, That Justice Scalia's sort of rant within his dissent provided a roadmap (laughs) that a a lot of marriage equality folks looked at and thought, "Hey, let's let's keep walking down that road." Um, Go ahead.
1: Well, he was absolutely prescient. And I, again, in that year, 2003, that was when we saw the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court issue their decision in a case called um, Goodyear versus Department of Health, where Goodridge versus Department of Health, mm-hmm. where they said that same, the Massachusetts Constitution required extending civil marriage to same-sex couples. And then the legislature asked, well, can we have civil unions? And the court came back and said, absolutely not. Um, the only thing that will satisfy this constitutional mandate is to open marriage itself to all comers.
0: Um, Professor Murray, we've got less than two minutes left, but I'm not letting you get away with trying to get you to be personal for a moment. When um, Justice uh, Breyer announced his, his retirement, lots of names of black women were offered as people who would be great on the Supreme Court. Your name was among them. And those of us Uh, who also work at MSNBC were incredibly proud to know that someone we work with um, was being talked about. Her name was mentioned as being on the roster of people who could be on the Supreme Court. Just talk, please, personally, what that meant to you, just to have your name out there.
1: Well, I mean, again, I had no illusions about my prospects, certainly against a field of black women who are so exceptionally qualified. I I counted myself fortunate to be included in their company. And I I just love the idea that a law professor and not a sitting judge might be on this list. Because again, I think the court could be diversified in a lot of ways and professional experience is one of them. And we've had law professors on the court before, I hope we will have law professors in the future. But again. I had no illusions about my chances. I have written about a number of controversial topics. Um, While I would love to discuss it with the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, it would be fodder I think that would make it very hard for the administration to get someone like me through. But I was just really excited to see this reservoir of black women lawyers being lifted up and having the whole country see that this wasn't a question of affirmative action. There were so many people who were supremely qualified to take on this position. They had amazing credentials, superlative experience. This wasn't about the president making some kind of concession to identity politics. There were amazing candidates here that he should have been considered, that should have been considered long before and finally were getting their due. And I was just glad to be included among that exceptional group.
0: See, everyone has has seen over the, the, the last 30 minutes why you were one of my favorite people to talk to, Melissa Murray. Professor of Law at New York University, thank you very much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.